of the Hill. Remember when you were kids? Anybody here played King of the Hill? Can I get a witness at least? King of the Hill. Do they still play that in schools today? They do? It's not been banned? Wow. Really? They still play King of the Hill in school. I am shocked. Uh, it's called King of the Castle, or, you know, it's a different name, but it's kind of the same thing. Uh, someone is appointed to sit on or to stand, uh, to stand on a place, a pile of something, or maybe a small hill or whatever, and uh, the terms are negotiated as to how others are able to and, and, and wanting to sort of knock them off of the hill so that they then can claim possession as sole king of the hill and the others try to do that. And it's kind of a, kind of a fun thing to do. And I remember the, the competitive nature that some of us have, how we use different measures and different tactics to try to gain possession of that hill and to claim for ourselves that we are king, at least for the moment, until someone else knocks us off. We're going to go to a passage today in Matthew 18.1 where we see the disciples playing king of the hill. They're battling, they are arguing, they're debating among themselves who is going to be the greatest. They're playing king of the hill. And the disciples alone are not the only ones guilty of this. I think those of us today who, as we read this text and take a look at this narrative, are going to have to conclude that we, like them, have personal ambitions, and sometimes those personal ambitions cause us to, to exude a competitive nature and seek to do whatever we can to knock the other individual off and to even step over them or on them in order to attain a rank, a position, or to be successful in our personal ambitions. The disciples have a personal ambition here. And this ambition is causing a debate, a discussion, an argument among brothers in Christ. And we see that sometimes even in a family we can see those things exist between a husband and a wife. We can see this sort of conflict exist between siblings, between parents and children. Just the other day I was in a grocery store and I watched a battle between a child and a mother as to who was going to be king of the hill in regard to the candy that they were seeing while they were in the checkout line. And the child was not to be denied, and he was wanting to be king of the hill, and he was going to scream until he got what he wanted. That's a conflict, isn't it? A child who has an ambition, a desire to succeed in accomplishing a getting of the candy and, and, and receiving a, a, a just reward for having seized control of that situation and dominated his mom and got what she did not want to give him. So this whole concept that we're about to study with the disciples is, is really something we all struggle with. Whether it's in our careers or in our personal endeavors. And sadly enough, sometimes even in a church. But the church as well is not void of conflict. For if you read any passage in the New Testament, any book that was written, you conclude and you, you surmise that, that the early church had such conflict within it as well as the church today. And there are no new issues, no new problems, no new conflicts within the church because I'm convinced that the same ones that had in the foundation of the church, we still have today. 
And so God addresses those, and he addresses those through the disciples in the text and the narrative we're going to look at together. And we're going to combine three narratives together into one narrative, one application, one truth, in regard to playing king of the hill, the conflict that we can have in regard to personal ambition. So let's take a look. First of all, as we look at the study, I want us to start off by defining what personal ambitions are all about. It starts with a beginning, and the beginning has to be with a definition, and we need to be extremely clear in regard to what personal ambitions are, what they can be and what they should not be. So in a a description or a definition of what ambition is, you see on the screen it is a dedicated, determined, devoted desire to achieve success, rank, fame, or power. A resilient intensity, an intense desire to achieve something at any cost. Now if you read that, for what it says, and you take a look at it and analyze it, you'll see that the word ambition in and of itself really isn't wrong. When it stands alone, it's not really wrong. It is something that we should all have, we should all attain, we should all possess. We must all have ambition because it is ambition that drives us. It is ambition that causes us then to produce. It, it's ambition that causes us to, to work. It's ambition that causes us to seek to become. For a student that doesn't have an ambition to graduate from school is not going to graduate from school. An employee who doesn't have an ambition to create the product that its employer wants him to create or she to create is not going to create that product. A disciple of Christ that doesn't have an ambition to glorify Christ and to exalt his kingdom and to grow and mature in Christ, if they don't have, and we don't have that ambition, we will not attain or achieve anything. And so ambition in and of itself is not necessarily wrong. But there is a conflict here among the the ambitions that we have because we have what we call within us a human nature that has a tendency then to take the ambitions that we have and to twist them into wrongful or unright ambitions. So let's take a look then at two aspects about ambition. They can be spiritual or they can be selfish. There are two aspects about the definition of of ambition that I want to look at. They can be spiritual or they can be ambitious. We have spiritual ambitions. Now, you don't have on your screen, but I'm going to read them to you. A couple of ambitions, and there are many throughout the Scriptures. There are so numerous that we would not and could not take the time to read all of them this morning. We'd have to read more than likely most, about 50% of the New Testament. But just for argument's sake, to help me sort of present the truth here about these personal ambitions that can be positive ambitions or spiritual ambitions, I read Matthew 6, 33, where Jesus is addressing a group of people, and he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto you. There is a personal ambition there. It's a personal ambition to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That should be the personal ambition of every Christ follower, to seek him first among anything and everyone else and to seek his righteousness that's a personal ambition that's a spiritual ambition we see paul writing to young timothy in first timothy chapter 6 verse 11 and verse 12 he says as for you O man of god flee these things now notice what he says pursue righteousness godliness faith Love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Again, he writes to Timothy in his second letter, chapter 2, verse 22. See, so flee youthful passions 
And, he says, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. There's a, a, a personal ambition here to seek out righteousness, faith, love, peace, and, and to seek out the Lord. That's a personal ambition of a disciple. This is a spiritual ambition. We should all have this ambition residing within us, driving us with a determination, with a devotion then to accomplish or to succeed in this endeavor. That should be the desire of every disciple. This is our personal ambition, which is a spiritual ambition. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 15, 20, listen to what he says. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. The Apostle Paul has a spiritual ambition. That ambition is to preach the gospel. And so we should, like Paul and like the letter to Timothy and like Jesus' words himself says, says that we should have personal ambitions as a disciple. And these ambitions should be spiritual in nature. And there are times when these ambitions are positive. They are good and they can be very spiritually. What makes them spiritual? Well, I think if we have the right motive... In the pursuits of these ambitions, what's the right motive? The right motive is for the glory of God and for the building up of his kingdom, for the advancement of his kingdom. Any ambition that you have that glorifies the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and that elevates God and serves to build his kingdom, to exalt his kingdom, to, to, to accomplish the kingdom that he wants to build, then those ambitions are spiritual and they are worthwhile. But you have to have the right motive. Any other motive for that is wrong. I mean, if we had, as a group or as an individual, the ambition to fill every chair in this auditorium for any other reason other than the glory of God and for the advance of his kingdom, that would be the wrong ambition. And so there's a spiritual ambition and there's an unspiritual ambition. But ambitions can be spiritual. If they have the right motive. If they... If that motive then seeks to succeed the right way, the biblical way, Christ's way, not the wrong way, because you can have the right ambition, but you can implement that ambition the wrong way or the unbiblical way or the ungodly way or in a way in which you're stepping on others or using others for the advancement of that, that purpose or that ambition. So what we desire to happen is as important as how we seek to achieve that spiritual ambition. Don't take a spiritual ambition and then seek to implement that ambition and sort of justify any means that you use in order to accomplish and achieve that ambition just so that you can succeed. That's not godly, and that's not spiritual. So the right motive in the right way to accomplish the right thing makes it a spiritual or worthwhile, personal, and even corporate ambition. So what are wrong ambitions? What then is the definition of a selfish ambition? Well, take a look at the text of Philippians 2, verse 3 and verse 4. Notice it says here, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Notice here it says that we can have ambitions, and those ambitions can be what? Selfish. What is a selfish ambition? A selfish ambition is to promote myself. It's to elevate me. It, it, it is a word that, is, that, that, that sort of conveys the concept of the idea of what we might use a career professional 
who steps on anybody and uses every means possible, no matter if it's right or wrong, to achieve success. Have you ever known anybody like that? They'll say anything about anybody, use anybody they can, fight dirty, do things that are unethical, lie, cheat, and steal, gossip, and slander just for the purpose of climbing the corporate ladder so that they can rise in rank and so that they can rise in the self-esteem of their peers. Politicians have been known to do that, haven't they? They've had ambitions, and they will stop at nothing in order to accomplish or to succeed in their ambition to become a political uh, a leader. And as a result of that, we, we look at them and we say, no, you know, ambitions are good. Influence may be good, but the way you attain that is not necessarily the right way to attain it. Why? Because it was wrong. A selfish ambition for the wrong motive implemented in the wrong way is the wrong kind of ambition, and it's all motivated because of the flesh. Notice what he says then in James 3, 14 through 16. Take your Bible and turn there. It's not on the screen. I want to read this to you. Notice again, James says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual. And notice he uses the word demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Here's a church that God is addressing through the penmanship of James who is, who is bitter jealous. There's bitter jealousy among the believers. And this bitter jealousy is causing selfish ambitions. And he's, and he's writing to a group of people in the church that for some reason have elevated themselves falsely above everyone else. This is a false opinion of themselves. They think they are better than everyone else, or they think their, their ideas are better than everyone else, and everyone else is beneath them. And they have this false image of themselves, believing that they are actually greater than what they really are, and as a result of that, they are treating everyone else beneath them, stepping on them, ignoring them, pushing them aside in order to accomplish and achieve their objective. And so we see here that he says there's a reason for these people. What is the reason that they're acting this way? It's because of a heart condition? And it's because of demonic influence. Imagine that. Because of a heart condition and because of demonic influence. You know, the heart has to be right when we write down our personal ambitions. Because if the heart is not right, our ambitions are going to be wrong. And one of the main reasons why many times our ambitions are wrong is because our hearts are not right with God. So it's not only a matter of the heart, but it's also a matter of demonic influence. None of us in here are immune to demonic influences. The disciples here were being influenced by the devil and their discussion and the conflict. I believe that they that ensued because of this, this, this thing that went on. Jesus knew, uh, Jesus knew that Satan was after him and he was putting up all the defenses and he was able to, to thwart any sort of attack and, and anything that Satan could put up. But his disciples were not quite as savvy. And I think Satan sometimes attacked the disciples in order to prevent Jesus from accomplishing his mission. And what a better way than to divide the disciples among themselves because he's always known it, it's easy to divide so that you can then conquer. And so we have here the definition of personal ambition. Let me ask you something. In this definition, as you reflect, not just today, but the rest of the week, are the ambitions that you have, are they spiritual or are they selfish? 
Are they spiritual or are they selfish? You can have a worthy ambition and seek to fulfill that ambition in the wrong way. But we first have to define whether or not my ambitions are spiritual or are they selfish. Why do I want the promotion on the job? Why do I want more income in my check account? Why do I want the recognition for what I've done where I work? Why is it that I'm seeking to succeed or seeking to accomplish or seeking to do the things that I'm doing? Is it to honor the Lord, to glorify Him, or to honor me and glorify myself? Is it to advance the kingdom of God, or is it to advance my own agenda and elevate me above everyone else so that everyone else will be envious of me? There's the definition of personal ambitions. Which ones are yours, spiritual or selfish? Now let's look at the desire of the disciples. Let's analyze then these three narratives that we're going to combine together into one story. There are three narratives we recorded for us in Matthew and Mark and in Luke, and we're going to combine the three and, and sort of produce, at, if we can, as we read the three, one scene, one scenario that helps us understand exactly what is going on here. Because it's interesting how multiple witnesses see multiple things and record multiple things under the Holy Spirit. And I'm convinced this is one account recorded three different ways by three very different people led by the Spirit completely different. It doesn't mean, mean one's right and the other's wrong or one's better or one's less. I believe that the three led of the Spirit did what they did for a reason and recorded what they did for a reason. And so as we take the three narratives together, I think we can have somewhat the full picture of exactly what's going on. So what is the desire of the disciples here? Notice in Matthew 18, 1, it said, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? At that time, the disciples came. Who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? James said, I'm the greatest. John said, no, I'm the greatest. Simon Peter said, no, I'm the greatest. There was a debate, a discussion going on. Again, we see that debate recorded in Mark chapter 9, verse 33 and 34. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent on the way. They had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Luke records it in verse 44, chapter 9. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now, in order for us to understand exactly what's going on, we need to understand the content or the context. Here's the context of the narrative. Jesus, up until his earthly ministry, as he's coming to the close of his ministry now, in Matthew chapter 18, <coughs> he has taken great, great lengths to sort of describe to his disciples that the kingdom is present. He's present. The kingdom is present. And he's talked a lot about the kingdom to his disciples, not only in public, but also in private. And so the disciples are beginning to conceptualize this idea that the kingdom is near, that the kingdom is close. And as they begin to reflect upon all the words that Jesus said, Jesus even told Simon Peter before this that he was going to give Simon Peter the keys to the kingdom. And they think physical keys. And so they're, they're thinking in their heads that Christ is about to set up an earthly kingdom. That's what man does. They're going to build a castle. They're going to have a throne. And Christ is going to assume reign. And he's going to rule on this throne as the king of Israel. They've concluded that. And then they put the last couple of things that have happened together. What has happened? Well, as Jesus is approaching this narrative, as we look at, the, at what happens before this text, we learn that Jesus takes three disciples to the Mount of Transfiguration. We studied that a couple of weeks ago. 
where he takes James and John and Simon Peter up to the mount and they see the glory of Christ, the Shekinah glory of the Lord. They see Moses and Elijah and they hear God speak to them. The audible voice of God that says to them, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And they conclude, Jesus is the son of God. We know who he is. He is the person and the presence of God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. He's God. They come down from the mountain and they encounter a man who has a son who's demonic, demon-possessed. And Jesus casts the devil out of the boy. And they say, not only is he the, 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 the presence of God, but he has power over demons. He's powerful. Wow. Then following that, what happens? They come into Capernaum, and he, as they're approaching Simon Peter's home, it's time to pay the temple tax, and Jesus tells Simon Peter, go to the Sea of Galilee, you'll find a fish, and in there you'll find the exact amount you're going to need for your taxes. Not only does he encompass the presence of God, not only is he powerful over demons, but he can provide financially for this kingdom. He has the presence, the power, and the provisions to make it happen. And they conclude in their minds and in their hearts that not only is he about to set up a kingdom, but that kingdom is very, very close. That's the context. And as a result of that, notice the conflict. Because they assume that Christ is going to set up the kingdom, they then automatically think, hey, we're one of the twelve. And when he establishes his kingdom, we're going to be powerful. I'm going to have a rank and a position of incredible authority and incredible influence. And we are going to reign. And then the discussion begins, well, I'm going to be over you and I'm going to outrank you. And no, you're not going to outrank me. I'm going to outrank you. And they began this debate, the discussion, this argument. These are the 12, the inner circle of the disciples. They're having this argument. Now, Jesus is more than likely walking ahead of them and they're walking behind him and they're having the discussion among themselves. Although Jesus may not have heard that, but he understands what they're talking about. I feel like that sometimes too. Now, here we have now a confrontation. They get to Capernaum. Many believe they enter to Simon Peter's house. And notice now he invites them into a private meeting. Hey, guys, let's sit down and talk. And in this private meeting, it's going to get very personal. And isn't it great when Jesus gets personal with the disciples, he has a private meeting. He doesn't expose all their sins out to everyone else. And wouldn't you like it today that if, if I had been following you around and, and all of a sudden I had all, a list of all your sins this week and I flashed them on the screen up there and said, I just want you to know, look at all the sins that this individual you've committed. How would you feel? You'd probably crawl under the chair, probably not come back. How could he know those things about me? Well, Jesus knows what they've been talking about. He knows what they've been discussing and arguing about. He knows what's in their hearts. He knows what's on their minds. And yet he asked the question. Why does he ask the question? Not because he doesn't know the answer, but he asked the question because he wants them to reflect upon what they have done and he wants them to repent of what they've done. He already knows, but he's leaving it up to them. And so he asked the question. And notice when he asked the question, guys, what have you been debating and arguing about? What do they do? It says here that they kept silent. Now, Mark helps us understand that they kept on being quiet. I can imagine, can't you, that the minute Jesus began to assimilate and to call out to the disciples to come into a private meeting in Simon Peter's home and ask all the others who were not part of the 12 to leave, they knew they were in trouble. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. Remember when you were a kid and you'd done, you had done something that you knew was wrong? 
and you knew that mom and dad had found out about it and they invite you into a private meeting for a personal chat, you knew what was about to happen, didn't you? Right? I have no idea what you're talking about. I never had one of those private meetings and a personal chat. You know, it's kind of like uh, America's uh, Funniest Videos. A little boy whose camera's on him, got cookie on his face. You can't see the mom, you can hear her voice, and the camera's only on him. Did you eat that cookie? I didn't eat that cookie. Cookie on his face. Did you? No, I didn't eat that cookie. Are you sure you didn't? No, I didn't eat And he's just denying it to the hilt. There's no denying their guilt. They've got cookie on their face. They know that Jesus knows, and they know what's about, to become, what's about to come, and so they just remain silent. They dare not answer the question that Jesus has posed to them because Jesus already knows the answer, and they know that he knows the answer, and they're not going to step up the plate and assume their guilt. They just re- remember what Jesus has said. They recognize that they are wrong, and they sit in silence. Why? Because their desires were wrong. Pastor David preached a couple of weeks ago for me. He preached a passage out of uh, John 3.30, where John the Baptist, who was an incredible evangelist, out by a river where people flocked to hear him, had a large church. Today he would have an international television ministry. I mean, he was in the spotlight. He had disciples. He had a congregation. He was rocking and he was rolling. And then he baptized Jesus and everything changed. And now Jesus was in the spotlight. Jesus was center stage. And John was being demoted. And his disciples says, John, are you going to stand for that? You know what he said? He must increase, but I must decrease. He had the right ambitions for the right reasons and in the right way. He knew that Christ was the center of, the, of, of all the attention. He knew that Christ should have been in the limelight, not him. Because it was all about Jesus. His desires were right. His heart was right. But Paul helps us understand that we, like the disciples, have the same struggle the disciples have because they're no different than you and I are. They're not any different. That's the cool thing about them. They are just as human as we are, and and we struggle just as they struggled. And Paul struggled in the same way. As, As he writes in Romans 7, 18, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. He says, the very things I want to do, I can't do. And the things I don't want to do, I find out I'm doing them, man. There's this battle going on, and I just can't seem to win. You see, he had ambitions, and he knew the struggle that the flesh had with the spirit in those ambitions when he wrote Galatians 5, 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. We have here, just like... Paul, the, the, the flesh and the spirit, the flesh, and there's this war, and we have these ambitions to succeed. We have these ambitions to, uh, to attain. We have these ambitions to possess. We have these ambitions to, to go forth, and yet we need to always check the desires of our heart and how those are being not only defined, but how they're being motivated and accomplished. Because why? Our hearts are wicked, we're sinful. We're carnal, and we're fleshly. You know, you can even have a spiritual um, ambition and seek to fulfill, accomplish, or succeed in that spiritual ambition the wrong way. 
which God will not honor? Because it's not only the desire of our heart to have spiritual ambitions and what we seek, but it's how we implement that spiritual discipline. And we have to check our hearts. You know, I don't know about you, but my heart's deceitfully wicked. Even as your pastor, I can, I, if I'm not careful, if I don't third or fourth or fifth guess myself, I can think I'm so pure and so right in my ambitions. But we all have to be careful. Because every one of us in here battle with, with a carnal nature, with the flesh and with the self that always rises up. And there's this war with the spirit and the flesh and the spirit and there's just battle going on. And aren't we good at somehow justifying and deceiving ourselves of thinking that we're right when in reality we're wrong? So let's look at the defense that's described here very quickly as we close. He gives us a defense in Matthew 18, 2 through 4. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Mark records it in verse 35 through 37. And then he sat down and called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. Interesting that Luke records in verse 47, chapter 9, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning for the, in their hearts, he knew the reason they were pursuing what they were pursuing and arguing because he knew what their hearts were like. And he took a child and put him by his side. And he said to whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Who is the greatest? That was their struggle. Now Jesus issues the command and he commands the disciples to come and they come. And the purpose and the reason for, the, for, the, for him wanting to have this personal time was not to just to scold them or to make them feel guilty or to shame them, but to teach them. Isn't it great that when we want our motives checked, all we have to do is come to the word of God and to the teachings of the Bible and to Christ himself and his spirit and say, all right, Lord, do a, do a, do a check. Help me see the reality of my ambitions. But we see also he called a child, and the child here is a, is a small little boy, more than likely just barely old enough to walk. And, and they more than likely are in Simon Peter's home. And it could have been one of Simon Peter's little children, little boys. We don't know, one of his sons. It could have been a nephew. It could have been a, a close relative that happened to be there when Jesus came, because when Jesus came, they all gathered then. They wanted to be a part, and they wanted to sit around the table with Christ. We don't know the identity of this little boy, but he was, he was a small child. And the reason why he uses this small child as an illustration to make a point is because children in the society of Christ's day were not esteemed. They were not seen as a, as a commodity. They were not seen as, a, as really anything other than a, a dependent. They, they, were, they were somewhat ignored. They were the lowest on the, on the social ladder. They were considered the least among their society. 
And so he takes this child and he says, I, I want you to understand that this child, I'm going to use him as a, as a human example here. And I, I'm going to then give you then this, this correction by using this child. And he uses, with, as, he, as he holds this child in his arms, he tells him to do a couple of things. First of all, he says, turn. If you notice in the text, he says, turn. He says, uh, truly I say to you, unless you turn, turn. Uh, many believe that means word change or the, or the word for uh, uh, conversion. Uh, the disciples didn't really need to be converted because they were already disciples. But once we become Christ's followers, it doesn't mean that we stop turning, does it? I mean, just because we're saved doesn't mean we still don't sin. And these disciples, because they had been converted, because they believed that Christ was the Messiah, he's saying you must turn. In other words, turn away from depending on self. They were still depending on themselves to seize a position of prominence. They were still jockeying for position in and of themselves. They were not depending upon Christ. They were looking to themselves and their own effort to accomplish and achieve this personal ambition. They were guilty of doing exactly what the Pharisees were doing, trying to earn or trying to attain their righteousness by their own effort. And so these disciples are trying to attain and to accomplish and achieve this ambition in and of their own effort. They're not looking to Jesus to do that. They're not even asking him which one is going to be in the highest rank or the lowest rank. They're jockeying for position themselves, doing everything they can to push the other out of the way to accomplish it for themselves. They are self-centered. And Jesus said, turn from self, turn away from self. Notice he says, I want you to become like a little child. What does that mean, to become? That means to be humble. To be humble. They were the lowest on the social ladder of the culture. And he said, if you want to be the greatest, you need to humble yourself like a child. These disciples thought they were the cat's meow, man. We're the 12. Man, we're the 12. Jesus is about to sit on the throne, man. We're special. We're somebody. We've been selected by him. We've been discipled by Christ. And when he sees the throne, man, woo, we're going to rule, man. We're going to be on top of the world, man. We're going to have influence and power and provisions and influence. And people are going to bow to us and follow. Man, it's going to be awesome. He said, man, you, you need to turn away from that. And you need to humble yourself and become like a child and humble yourself because you were saved, notice he uses the word in these narratives, the word serve. Why have I selected you? To serve. Who is the greatest? The servant. The servant is the greatest. And not just any servant who self-sacrifices everything they can for others and puts everyone first, but a servant who serves those, notice he says, to receive the lowly. He says, I'm calling you to serve those who can't do anything for you. The lowest in your society, the ones who have no power, no provisions, no influence, they're not the lawyers or the doctors or the kings or the queens or the rich or the famous, those people right there, no, I'm not talking about those, I'm talking about the lowliest in your culture, the lowliest in your society, the people that you can't benefit anything from. When you receive them, you receive me. Try that for church marketing. Most churches I know after the lawyers and the doctors and the politicians and the wealthy and the rich and the affluent and the popular and all that. But he says serve the lowest. Because when you, when you receive them, you receive me. You receive me. 
That's an incredible indictment, isn't it? Because I don't know about you, but even among pastors, there are relationships that pastors have because of what so-and-so can do for me. And isn't it interesting when they do for me, they expect me to do for them. It's like the world, isn't it? And we, we select and we choose who we're going to serve and who we're going to receive based upon what we think we're going to profit from it. And when Jesus says, no, I want you to serve those people, to receive those people that, that can't give you anything in return. For when you do that, you receive me. So what are the consequences to those of us who do that? He said, well, if you do that, you'll be received. You'll be rewarded. That's the path to greatness. You want to be great? Be lowly. And that's, that's the path to greatness. Let me, I wish I could also talk about pride and humility. Don't do that. That's also bad. But he says, lower yourself because if you don't, if you don't, you'll forfeit your reward and you'll forfeit the reign of God over your life and the blessings and the benefits of his rule and his provisions. So here's, here's, here's the questions that we close. Am I putting the best defense or the best defense I can against selfish ambitions? Am I? Are you? Are we? I mean, we have ambitions, and these ambitions should be spiritual. But because of our hearts and our human nature and our tendencies, we often have a tendency to even sometimes take ambitions that God gave us and twist them and, and, and turn them and, and, and do things to them that actually become more selfish than they are spiritual. The heart is deceitfully wicked. And we can justify and we can, we can pretend and we can camouflage and we can negotiate and we can navigate and we can almost justify anything, but he says, be careful. But not just the heart, but the world's influence and the enemy's influence. Because he'd like to take our ambitions and make them selfish and self-centered rather than spiritual. For the glory of God and the building up of his kingdom. So could you do better? Why do you want that promotion on the job? Why do you need more money in your pocket, in your bank account? What motivates you? What are the ambitions that you have? If there's anything other than for the glory of God and for the upbuilding of his kingdom in your life and, and in the lives of others who have yet to know him, Paul said, my ambition is to preach and proclaim Christ. We're not here to, for our own personal ambitions that are selfish, so I can, I, can, I can become president or whatever, not just for me, but they're for him. So would Christ... Have me, what would he have me do about my ambitions from this moment forward? Maybe you've never thought about your ambitions. To be quite honest with you, in about 35 years of preaching, this is the first time I've ever spoken or talked or did a study on ambitions. And as I think about this, we got a little saddened about that. Because I think we all have them. We need to be careful that our ambitions are spiritual and not selfish if we're to be the individuals that God wants us to be and the church that he wants us to be. Could you do better? How could you do better? I think we all can, and we all should. The question is, will we? Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. 
Emanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas, and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Each Sunday morning, Emanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 10 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship service in a casual and relaxed setting. Our second worship service begins at 11 a.m. and is led by the Emanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for adults and children of all ages are offered at 9.45 a.m. and 11.15 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com. We have two coming to give their testimony in baptism this morning. Baptism, again, is just symbolic of what's already transpired in a person's life. They, they're coming this morning to give this visible testimony. This is my friend Donnie. And several years ago, Donnie's sister and brother-in-law started attending. God began to work in their life and brought them to a point where they made some decisions to follow Christ and to be uh, Christ followers, and as a result of that, and as the change that Donnie saw in their life, God used them to draw him to make that same decision. And just a week or so ago, Donnie nailed that decision down. Donnie, have you come to that place where you know that you've asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart to be your savior and your boss? Yes, sir. All right. If you're here this morning and you're part of Donnie's family or his life group, would you all just stand? Donnie, because of your decision that you've asked Christ to come into your heart and it's your desire to follow him, not only in believer's baptism, but to be a follower of his for the rest of your life, it's my honor and my privilege this morning to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism, and we're raised to walk in newness of life. love to see everybody get baptized, but boy, mine's a lot cuter. <laughs> this is Dylan Cochran. If you're here and you're with, in her family, would you stand up? See your family up there? <laughs> Dylan accepted Christ about two years ago, and just recently in one of our services, the Holy Spirit has drawn her and led her to follow in baptism. Dylan? Have you asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? It's because of that. It's my privilege to get to baptize you this morning in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life.